You're listening to a resource from Alpine Bible Church. Alpine Bible Church exists to know Christ Jesus together and to make Him known. We are located in Sugar Creek, Ohio. For more information, visit our website at alpinebible.org. May Jesus be glorified in your life. Join me in Ephesians 4. This uh, book of Ephesians is a fantastic brief, almost a whole Bible in itself text tells us who God is, what God's done, what God is still doing, what he offers us as those who follow him. So it has a, just a listing of all the blessings that we have had through our relationship with him. It talks about the fact that we've been revealed a mystery that no one else in the universe would have known before us in this revelation, and we have a chance to know that. As common people walking on this planet, we know the intimacies of the Son of God who has revealed himself to us. We are privileged in so many different ways. We even know the end of the story. Uh, It's just an amazing thing to have all of that. He brings us through the first three chapters and comes to chapter four, and then he wants to turn all of that information into a practical application. So... In chapter 4, he begins by saying that we, as the prisoner of Christ, should walk worthy. And when he uses that word prisoner, he's simply reminding all of us that we belong to, to the Lord, which you've given your life to him. So if you're, if you're a believer in Christ today, if you have called on him to be your Lord and Savior, you are now the property of the King of Kings. And as a result of that, you have this mandate from him to, to walk worthy of that. And then he gives us uh, some uh, attitudinal ways of walking with lowliness, with gentleness or meekness, walk with long-suffering, walk as though you're bearing with one another in love. These are signposts, things that as we express these things in our life, people can see there's something unique and different about us because we're not like everyone else. That's supposed to be what these things are. And then he reminds us that we come from this commonality or this unity in verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. This is what's happened to us now. We have this unity in him, uh, something that identifies all of us uh, who are the true church of Jesus Christ. He just says there's unity in the Spirit. There's the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. There is... uh, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And so as he reminds us of that, I would just throw a comment out today that we are uh, entering a phase, maybe it's already been happening, but we're certainly in a phase where many who are attending churches that follow Jesus Christ, or at least have in the past, are going to find themselves in situations where they're tempted to give up certain things, certain truths. And these things that are listed here by Paul are things we will not, cannot ever give up. These things mark the true church. Any slippage in any of these particular things that's named, seven items here, would uh, declare that you're not really following Christ. So when a church drops off the map on certain areas, uh, when we talk about uh, one spirit, uh, one body, one, one uh, hope, one Lord, one faith, we have to be careful. We understand, and we went through those already, but these things are so important for us. Uh, one baptism, simply meaning it's all through Christ. Uh, one God and Father of all. 
uh, and these things will always unite us and have through the centuries and they will continue until Christ returns. So as he uh, unpacks the sense of unity and so on and who we are, in verse 7 he shifts gears and he wants now to uh, uh, go from uh, this idea of this unity together, this, this, we're all bonded together in these seven things. Uh, and he wants to take us back to uh, what is a wonderful storyline that there is this uniqueness about us as we are called the church of Jesus Christ. There is uh, this conglomerate called the body of Christ, but then there's also every individual in this church called the church of Jesus Christ. And he's going to highlight just for a moment the uh, uniqueness of the individual believer. Uh, the fact is that uh, as fantastic as, as the church is and all that we have in common with each other across the world, I'm still amazed and will always be amazed at the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ took out of his own uh, mind the ability to separate everyone else, every human being, and find me. If that doesn't do something in your spirit, even this morning still thinking about that, I don't know if you understand your faith. The fact that the God of the universe, uh, you know, sent his son, and we're going to go through that again this morning because that's what this text is about. But the fact he says, but to each one, to each one, now he's going to the individual of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And as he shifts gears and talks about the individual, he uses that word grace in the text there. And in the original text, there, there is a, uh, obviously before a definite article that's right before the word grace. So it actually reads, the grace was given. Not just grace, but the grace was given to each one according to uh, the gift and the measure of the gift. And so every person in this room has been singled out by the Lord and given the grace upon your life. And that has an impact that we're going to talk about today that is an amazing impact for us. He goes on, he's going to explain, uh, therefore he says, and he's going to say, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. And then he's going to unpack that for us. Before I even go that far, I just want to pause here and just camp out in some basic things that I think are important for us. This, the grace that I have been given, it's hard to actually define it. I have a multitude of resources to see what everyone wants to say. But the essence of it, if I can boil it down, is simply this. This is grace that's unique to Christ himself. It's that grace that came to us unmerited. It's this grace that is, in essence, he himself. He is the grace. The fact is that Jesus Christ gave us himself. It's an amazing thing to even try to understand. And it's beyond my ability to even express what that means. He's given of himself. Remember the, the woman at the well and Jesus was uh, meeting with her and speaking to her. And he, he asked for water. She uh, questioned that. And then he finally said, if you had asked me or if you would have asked the one who's speaking with you to give you a drink, he would have given you living water. <laughs> he's talking about giving her himself. That's why he stayed there. That's why he, he was there ready to meet her. It's all about him meeting you. Uh, salvation is not something that we just sort of do. Uh, I hear a speaker, I hear, a, I hear the sort of the, the equation of what it means to find Christ as Savior, and if you do this, and if you believe this, and, yada, and raise your hand. Uh, all of that is, are just parts of something. But the fact is that if Jesus Christ allows you to understand him and receive him, that means he has come to you personally and has revealed himself to you. And he's calling you to himself. It's not uh, where you just join a club <laughs> or a bunch of weirdo believers and join up with us and go on a march somewhere. This is him touching and changing your life. Has that happened to you? Have you experienced that? The, uh, the beauty of that is, is unbelievable. He has 
then uh, saved us by this grace of him. But it's also an enabling grace. And that's where Paul's going in this text. It's a grace that saves us, but it enables us. And it's amazing when you even pause and consider that. Because in the sense of enabling, uh, this is one who has allowed me to, uh, enabled me to see who he is. Because I would never understand who he was if I couldn't recognize him. But he has, through this grace, enabled me to see him. Through this grace, he has enabled me to desire him because I'd never desire him otherwise. There's nothing in me that would ever desire uh, to, to be like him, let alone to, to even know him. But his grace has done that. His grace has worked in my life to want to know him and to pursue that. And his grace works in our lives, allowing us to want to serve him. Hopefully. And so all who place their faith in Christ uh, receive him as Savior. We, we, we know that. If you call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved, right? We, we all know that. And yet there's something else here uh, that God determines as he brings himself to us through this grace. He determines the depth and the impact of one's faith. It's all up to him. So in the verse, he says that uh, to each one of us, the grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now here it gets a little bit interesting because God determines the depth and the impact of our faith by this measure of Christ's gift. Uh, the measure of Christ's gift, I want to say two things about it. First of all, it concerns the, the depth and the, the grip of faith initially and how our faith will be fleshed out in our lives through our lives. You know, some folks, when they find Christ, when Jesus Christ comes into your life, some folks uh, are just swept off their feet emotionally by what they realize has happened in their life through Christ. Maybe uh, you came out of a time of darkness or a time of great sin. And so there was an impact on your life that was so deep and moving and stirring. Someone else comes out of a Christian home. You were raised in the bubble of Christianity and you haven't really broken a lot of laws, just uh, all the small ones. And you don't feel like you're that big of a sinner. So when you experience the grace of Christ, it's not as drastic of an issue in your life. You don't feel as majorly changed as maybe someone else does. So even our awareness or understanding of, of the work of grace in our life and how to appreciate the depth of grace in our life is going to vary from saint to saint. Do you understand that? We're all saved if we call on him, but there's a degree of uniqueness that is only uh, from him to us in terms of how that's fleshed out. I don't understand that, but that's what I believe is being said here. Another thing about the measure of Christ's gift is that it determines the purposes of God for each of us. Uh, think about uh, Andrew. Remember Andrew in the New Testament? Andrew is the first uh, disciple who... Uh, spots uh, the Lord. The Lord says, follow me. Andrew goes to the home where Jesus was hanging out and spends some time with him. He's, he's uh, excited as can be. He runs back and finds his brother, Peter. And he says, I found the one. I found the Messiah. And he's, he's so energetically excited and he wants to take Peter back to the Lord. And isn't it interesting that as time goes by that it becomes Peter who becomes the... Uh, you know, the, the headline apostle. And it's Peter who pushed this thing of grace to the max in his own life. And he experienced the majesty of, of grace far more evidently than Andrew would have. And, and I guess if it was me writing the story, I would have rewarded Andrew with uh, the, maybe being the leader of the pack and, and uh, because he's the one who saw Jesus and recognized Jesus and, and drew attention to who Jesus was. And it seems like that would be the guy who'd get rewarded for the uh, sort of the leading the, the disciples later on. But no, it's, it's going to be Peter. Remember when uh, in John 21, when Jesus and Peter are having a chat and uh, Jesus tells Peter that 
this is how you're going to follow me. This is what's going to happen to you. And in verse 21, Peter uh, turns and he looks back at the disciple whom Jesus loved, was talking about John. And he looks back and says, Lord, what about him? <laughs> but what Jesus says is, is a definition of what we're talking about. Jesus says, that's not your business. What I do with John is not your issue. You just follow me. And I want to just remind all of us that as he has apportioned to us this gift of grace, one of the things we have to learn in the Christian life is that how he works in our life is what's important. And I need to track that and not worry about anybody else around me. Because what happens is we tend to look at others. We tend to measure ourselves by others and how they're gifted, how they're serving Jesus. And we, we either feel like we miss something or, or uh, maybe we feel like we're ahead of the pack. I don't know how we view ourselves. But somehow in, in our perspective of that, uh, the whole issue is that God has worked in my life, not in your life the same way. But we're both saved. But somehow in the measuring of his grace, there's a uniqueness about us that's designed specifically for each individual. This is what's amazing about God. He has saved you and then he has specially designed and equipped you to work in your life and to use you for his glory somehow through you as you allow him to, to work through you. But no one here will do the same thing or look the same or act the same in terms of how we serve him. There's no cookie cutter Christians that are designed by God. We're all individuals. And this is so the the. The God of the universe has done this for you and for me? Yes. The measure of his gift. I think about Saul. Saul, who was the toughest one against Christians, arresting Christians, uh, persecuting Christians, and yet the Lord saw to touch his life with this grace that came upon Saul. Remember it was Barnabas that eventually introduced Saul to the believers. Barnabas, who was the encourager. Barnabas, who was known uh, as the disciple, who was uh, someone who shared resources, who cared for the saints, uh, who was well respected for that. Barnabas, who was a great encourager. Barnabas should have been the one who was credited to write part of the New Testament. Barnabas should have been rewarded with uh, being called to be the, the disciple who would go to the Gentiles. Uh, you can just sort of write the script and say, we would have chose Barnabas. He's the hero. No, God chose Saul. And in the process of changing his name to Paul, through the grace that was poured upon his life, he became the one who recognized the depth of grace in his life and used that as a means of serving Christ with all of his life. See, so when we read this text, this verse, it means way more than just a quick verse. We just sort of breeze through. To each one of us, the grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And you and I have been uniquely imparted each of us, uh, according to Christ's measure, for our place and our purpose in his body. And we should be acknowledging that. And I want to just say to you today, uh, those of you who are young, to somehow try to understand that. Try to pursue that. And find out who you are in Christ so that you can get on the business of serving him and not wasting your life. How many of us as, as Christians, long-term Christians, and I'm talking about those who got saved at a young age. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I wonder how many of us who got saved at a young age wasted years of knowledge and supposed relationship with Christ before we got busy really actually serving him. I wonder how many of us would say, oh, we wasted so much time dinking around in our little life trying to figure out who we are. When we had the master in our hearts for years. That's a shame. But thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy in my life. Look at verse 8. Therefore, he says, in light of that, he says, When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts 
to men. Now, this he ascended. What does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. And he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Now, uh, Paul uh, has taken some thought from Psalm 68 and verse 18. I'm going to have you go to Psalm 68 for a moment to try to understand why he would even bring this up in this context. How is this going to challenge us or encourage us today? Now, what does this have to do with gifts? When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. He quotes verse 18. He's changed the words a bit. But you'll see in verse 18, it says, you have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. There's what the, the part that he used. And then he changed the next line. Because here in Psalms, it says, you have received gifts among men. And Paul changed the words to, you have given gifts to men. And this is going to be hard for us to capture today. But let me try to, first of all, give the context of why he drew this statement from this psalm. This is a, uh, a, a psalm of David who writes about the conquest of uh, the Jebusite city that became eventually Jerusalem. And uh, as he writes, he's talking, and let me just highlight, he says, Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, let those who also hate him flee before him. Look at verse 4. Sing to God, sing praises to his name, extol him who rides on the clouds, and by his name, Yah, and rejoice before him. A father of the fatherless and a defender of widows is God in his holy habitation. Uh, look at verse 7. Oh God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, say la. The earth shook. The last part of 8 says, Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. Look down in uh, verse 15. A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you fume with envy, you mountains of many peaks? This is the mountain which God desires to dwell in. Yes, the Lord will dwell in it forever. It's a reference, actually, to Mount Zion. And this uh, idea from this uh, Jebusite city is 2 Samuel 6 and 7. Well, let me go on. Look at verse 17. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. He's just flirting with numbers here. He knows it's far more than we could imagine. The Lord is among them, as in Sinai, in the holy place. What he's saying there is the Lord is more than just in one place. The holy place, yes, he's there, but he's also in the midst of that army. Uh, he's even saying to us that he understands the Lord is not contained in one place. But he goes on and says, you have ascended on high, you have led captivity captive, and you have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious and the fact is, yes, when a conquering king conquers, uh, it is a fact that those who are even enemies who have been conquered now fear him. And in the fear of the one who's conquered them, they bring him gifts, trying to buy him off, trying to preserve their life. That's what happens in that situation. Uh, in this case, obviously, uh, he wanted to switch that around because once that king has settled in and has become the, the reigning one in that area, then he can, uh, in a relaxed way, give gifts back to those who follow him. So verse 19 of the text in Psalm says, Blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits, the God of our salvation. So Paul took this text to somehow try to paint a picture of what has happened, what took place when he ascended on high, and how we are included in that, and what that actually means. The conquering king rewards his followers. Now, I, this week, try to think, how can I help us really not only understand the text, but to be drawn into the text. Because somehow I, I, I want and long for us to get a sense of the glory of this statement. I, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, uh, a conquering 
uh, army or a conquering king, you and I have no experience in this. Uh, if you were to watch old uh, uh, movies of uh, at the end of World War II when uh, uh, soldiers were coming from uh, Belgium and coming through, uh, uh, heading uh, th- through Paris and then coming through uh, 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 to the uh, to the sea coast to uh, uh, get back in Versailles and get back uh, on ships to come home and the uh, the crowds in those old black and white movies showing the crowds hanging out windows waving. Uh, uh, cloths and sheets and whatever they could to send glory to the uh, wounded and all the soldiers marching through and uh, uh, some were hugging and there's all kinds of iconic pictures of that and and it's a a fantastic event moment and that's probably the last time in the U.S. history we have something that glorious that we could say was a conquering moment when the enemy was defeated so we don't really have much to say about that. Most of you uh, probably thought that maybe if the Republican Party won this last time, you'd have a, a feeling of conquering. Oh, that was supposed to be funny. It wasn't, I guess. It, that didn't happen. <clears throat> the closest thing I can think of would be if the Cleveland Browns won the Super Bowl. How's that? <laughs> would that excite you? Would, that, would you feel like you finally conquered something? The dog pound would. I know that. Okay, so they would be so happy. And I would be happy for you. I really would. Just like I was happy when the Cubs beat the Indians a long time ago. (laughs) Sorry. That wasn't supposed to happen. So I don't know. We don't have much of an image of what this means. So let me try to help us understand. Christ's resurrection led the way for souls long awaiting the day to be glorified with him. I would say from paradise to the throne. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ did not resurrect, then our faith is futile. Uh, In fact, is if Christ did not die for sin, paying the debt of sin, and if he did not resurrect, which would verify his deity and his authority, then all souls would be lost. But, you know, that, that is really a, a statement that is uh, impossible to stand on. It's a what-if impossibility because it was already a done deal with God. We already were told that in Ephesians when he tells us he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This is already a done deal, but yet at the same time, sort of uh, in, in a human sense, that's uh, understandable that that had to take place. But he who earned the right, who finished his course, who took possession of all who died in faith, And he also took possession of all who were living in faith and even yet today and has taken all of us past and present uh, captive, uh, captive from the curse because we were held by that curse and captive unto himself. So we became his personal possessions, his adopted children, his property. If you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, I want to just remind you today that uh, the Bible says that every person who does not uh, uh, know Christ Jesus yet is under the curse of sin. That means that you're a sinner. Uh, That sin is, is a hopeless position except for the hero of our faith who we're talking about today who gave his life to pay a price to set us free from that curse. So Christ's resurrection uh, led the way for him to then take captive those who were captive and take them captive to himself. The second thing about Christ's resurrection is this. It gave him the authority over all transformed souls yet to come. So when Jesus rose from the dead and and then he ascended, it gave him uh, authority over all who were yet going to come after that, who were going to serve him and follow him, you and I even. And as new creatures in Christ, you and I, with the Lord reigning on high, he is now both willing and able to then give spiritual gifts to those who are his converted followers. That's where we're heading in this text. And these gifts come to us with a purpose in mind. I, uh, 
I, I want to finish this thought by simply saying this. God, let me use this as a verb. God graced us with forgiveness and salvation, right? He graced us by making us into new creatures in Christ, the Holy Spirit of God living in us. He graced us. Not only with that, he graced us with this ability to have spiritual gifts to serve him. It's all from him. And why? Why, why? Well, we're going to find out, but he's, he's, I, I want us to know this. There's one thing that's happening that as he's introducing all of this, he wants us to know that he's about to do a new thing. And that's why this discussion of gifts is starting here. And the new thing is that Christ's work of establishing and building up this body called the church is about to take place. As Paul uh, unpacks this for us, following his work on the cross, he took his throne and he uh, began this new work that he's doing in you and I. And so in verse 9, he says, now this he ascended. Well, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. Paul still wants us to know. He wants us to try to measure and grasp the understanding of what has happened. What has the Lord done on our behalf, especially for those of us as individuals? What does it mean, this he ascended, but that he also first descended? And this truth that we're going to look at is supposed to, I think, in Paul's mind, stir us up with this sense of extreme awesomeness of the sweeping power of the goodness and the, the grace of our Lord in our lives. So the idea of descending has all to do with the distance and the drastic surrender of our Lord from his position in heaven. So uh, let me first of all take Philippians 2, 7 and 8 and just process through that again. You, you all know it, but let me just work through that. The first thing that we understand about this descending, what does it mean that he descended? Well, he had to leave heaven. And as Paul writes in Philippians 2, verse 7, he made himself of no reputation. So uh, the Lord began to uh, uh, just step back from all that he was before uh, he actually came as a, as a child. Uh, this is the pre-incarnate Christ living uh, in he- reigning in heaven with the Father. He made himself of no reputation. So even from heaven to earth, uh, through the whole system, he had to back off on his glory. Uh, so he, uh, he made himself of no reputation. He took the form of a bondservant. So the lowest uh, denominator of a person uh, on this planet, he took the lowest point that he could as somebody who is uh, a pro- own, own his property. Uh, in many cases, uh, bond servants were not uh, were, were treated terribly by most people, and so uh, they had no rights, no privileges, and that's sort of the position he took for himself. Uh, he uh, he came in the likeness of men. That that phrase has so much with it, but just to think, first of all, that he came in the likeness of men. Therefore, he entered into the dark, lonely womb of a young maiden named Mary. And then he allowed himself to uh, be in that womb nine months, then be born as, a, as a, an infant that has uh, no uh, uh, self-sustaining capacity. So he's born as a baby that's helpless. He has to be taken care of by two human beings who themselves have literally nothing. But that's the way by design that he came into this world. Uh, He had to grow up uh, with this knowledge about himself as it was developing in his life. And yet he had to humble himself. We're told here in the text he had to humble, keep that down, uh, not allow himself to uh, uh, to uh, go above who he is with his peers and with those he grew up with, to uh, maintain a uh, quiet and, and growing life until God's call, God's timing. He became obedient to the point of death, we're told here, even the death of the cross. And so this sense of obedience to, uh, uh, to knowing that he came for the purpose of dying 
and, 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 and a cross was in his future, and he already knew that. And so, uh, again, the, the idea that that which was, uh, uh, if anybody was on a tree, they were considered cursed. And so he knew that that was the worst kind of position to be in as far as uh, death was concerned. That's part one. Part two, in this descending, Jesus, uh, the man, had to die and he had to be buried. So, you know, most, uh, many theologians, many who are study these things have felt that the lowest descent was to be placed in the grave. If you're God and you're claiming that you're the son of God, uh, uh, the author of life, and then you're placed in a tomb, that would be the lowest of the low. Others have, uh, uh, have made the summary idea that, uh, well, uh, his soul went into hell. Uh, they take that from 1 Peter 3, 19, uh, where it says that he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient in the days of Noah. We have that text. And so it is interesting. So it makes me ask, where was the spirit of Jesus between his physical death and his resurrection? Uh, so uh, I'm just going to play with this for a second because uh, uh, what I want us to understand, again, is the depth by which he descended to change your life. This is not about, uh, this is not theology uh, uh, deep here. This is simply to grasp the, the contrast from glory and heaven and the, the creator of the universe who loves you and I because he designed us and, and uh, created us and yet he who had to make this move to save us had to descend himself. No one else could do this. And so uh, in this text, Paul has given us this. And so he says, he who descended is also the one who ascended. So he's going to take us down to these lower parts of the earth and bring us back up. And so it's not like we're supposed to hang here and just sort of try to explain this. But I do want to just say this. You remember when he died on the cross and Jesus uh, had the thief, the two thieves beside him. It's in Luke 23. And the, the, the one thief uh, was just railing on the Lord Jesus. If you're the son of God, save yourself and save us. The, the word says he, they, he cursed Jesus. The other thief uh, uh, kind of silenced his, uh, his other fellow and said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you go into your kingdom. You remember what Jesus said today, this day, you shall be with me. Where? In paradise. In paradise. Well, can you imagine, as Jesus says, it is finished and he dies, and the thief is still alive, and they come along later and they break his legs, and then he dies. And evidently, if the Lord is keeping his promise, he wakes up in this place called paradise. And he wakes up, and he sees Jesus, first person he would have seen, And uh, all we have to go by about what that means, uh, besides that statement, is what we had read in the parable in Luke 16. You know, the rich man who dies and Lazarus, the beggar who dies. And the parable gives us uh, some dialogue, which we may not be able to take literally. And so, but what we do understand simply is this, that uh, it, it would not be at all shocking, and I, I think it's quite possible, especially with what it says in 1 Peter 3.19, that when Jesus said it is finished and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit, that his spirit went into paradise, whatever paradise is. But certainly I do believe this, that until uh, the resurrection, there's no question in my mind that those who are, are in Hades or what we might call, we might use hell lightly, but Hades certainly, those who are being punished for their lack of following God, uh, who died in all the Old Testament, all of those, uh, all, in, in First Peter is talking about fallen angels who, were, who were, uh, uh, are being held until the day of judgment. There's no question in my mind that somehow, maybe it's a part of hell, I've always wondered, you know, uh, the fact that these fallen ones would hear 
that this one who has been promised has finally come and given his life and paid for the curse of sin to set free all of those who have put their faith in him. And I believe that those in hell, if nothing else, heard that sermon. I, I don't know. How, that's up to God how he does that. I really don't care. The point is that I just think that that uh, uh, makes some sense to me. And, and what is uh, amazing to me is that can you imagine if you uh, like the, the illustration of the man in, in, uh, in the parable, the rich man who who uh, was trying to say, Lord, uh, send someone else to my home, send someone else to my uh, to, to my family and tell them maybe they'll listen to them. If somebody rises from the dead, maybe they'll listen to them. And, and there's this plea that uh, I was so absolutely wrong and now it's too late for me, but at least maybe you can save someone. Can you hear the cries in hell even today of someone who has died, who maybe was in church all their life and heard the truth all their life, and now they know they've missed it because they didn't receive Christ. And can you imagine the heartache? And I believe that's all part of hell. I, I, I think it's wonderful is that I think God allows us to go to heaven and purifies our memory. But I think part of hell is not purifying our memories. I, I honestly believe that, that there are people in hell crying out, wishing that their family wasn't coming to join them. The fact is that our Lord descended that low that he stepped into a place called paradise where all the saints of old are waiting for him to do what he had done, which was to walk into, into that area, that place of lost souls. Can you imagine Jesus walking in and immediately saying, did you hear me? It is finished. And all of those who are waiting for that event to take place, because that event was especially important. Let me uh, use uh, this text to tell you how important it is. It's in Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to just... Use this if you'll just follow me for a second. In Hebrews chapter 11, this list of all those who are faithful following Christ through generations, and it's kind of listing some of the heroes of the faith that we all know about. And as he's working through, he, he gets to, uh, you know, over after verse 30, he starts talking about uh, some of the some of the ones we know, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David. He mentions them as Samuel, uh, verse 33, who through faith subdued kingdoms and worked righteousness and obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire. These were all heroes. Verse 35, women received their dead, raised to life again. Uh, some Old Testament situations, Elijah raised the, the dead of a son uh, who had died of this woman and, and raised her son back to life. Things like that were taking place. Others were tortured. All of a sudden he shifts gears from the glory of knowing the Lord to the, uh, the, the, the very difficult moments of knowing the Lord. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings and chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins and being destitute, afflicted and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. And they wandered in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Oh, pause. Just one second. I'm talking about people who gave their life to follow Christ. And this is telling us what it cost to follow the one who did the amazing thing he did for them. You see, the more you understand grace in your life, the more you have a sense that nothing could tear me away. Nothing could change my feelings about Christ. Nothing could pull me away from my faith. Nothing could strip that away. I am so committed to him because I recognize his work of grace in my life. And I am locked in committed to him. Is that you? Could this list describe any of us in the next five years? Uh, could I read here? Uh, they were mocked. Uh, they were uh, ripped from their homes. Uh, they lost their mortgages. 
Uh, they lost their jobs. They, wouldn't, they could not be rehired. Uh, we, we could just name all kinds of things that we could fill in the blank here with what might actually possibly happen someday, right? Are you, in your mind, so locked into Christ, it doesn't make any difference? Oh, let me, let me read something else that I just read something in uh, this week about. I, I don't want to tell you stuff I read anymore. I just, I'll just tell you I'll fill in the blank, and then you'll get the, the picture. Uh, children were taken away from them and placed in the camps to uh, readjust their thinking. They're talking about that again. Are you ready to let that happen, or will you deny something to hang on to your kids? You see, the, the whole point of this morning is to see how, how he descended on our behalf for me as an individual. He descended to the lowest place, and he, uh, uh, while he was there in a, in a few moments of moments, he, he declared the fact of what he had done and what he was there for, and he then took captive all of those who were waiting for this moment, because it says here in Hebrews, all these... Verse 39, and all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Jesus Christ was able to say, now it's finished. Now it's perfect. Now I can take all of you with me legally, righteously, and I can then take you captive to myself uh, because I am the conqueror over sin, the curse, death, and hell. And I can take the sting out because I'm the victor. And he then captured them and took them with him uh, in this sort of uh, move out of this place, wherever they were, if that's even what it's saying, it doesn't make any difference. The point is he took them and he fulfilled this statement uh, in, in that moment on that day. So as he resurrected, he took to himself all who faithfully believed in him so that now, now, today, you and I can say with the Apostle Paul, we are confident. Yes, we are confident. Yes, and well-pleased, rather, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So this, he ascended. It's his train of grace poured over all of us uh, with gifts of a conquering king. And I have the privilege of, and you do too, of having those gifts as he works in us. So all who are living, having this opportunity, now bear the image of this Lord receiving these gifts according to the measuring of those gifts to us. And so none of us are the same, and we're all unique. And next week we're going to see how he then takes these gifts and begins to apportion them into his body in a way that we all complement uh, his design and what that means for us. I just want to close today by just saying this. The, the Lord Jesus Christ has done this amazing work in our lives. And it's the creator God uh, coming especially for us uh, who singled me out years ago and called me to himself. We, we had a staff retreat last week and, uh, and spent uh, Monday evening of that retreat just sharing testimonies. And I was on holy ground in that moment, listening uh, through the tears of broken hearts of what Christ has done in people's lives. Our staff love Christ. And uh, that meant so much for me to hear that. And I can just tell you that each one of us are uniquely different, and each one of you are. But his work of grace in your life means that he is working and he wants to weave that work in your life so that you eventually figure out not only what he's done for you, but what he wants you to do for him. And it may not necessarily be how you want to write the script. It may be that he just wants to write it for you as you grow in him. And we're going to talk about that in the next week or two. But I hope that you just hear this and say to yourself today, Lord, I am amazed again 
at how low you went to bring me to a place as high as I can be. I am a child of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and so are you if you've given your life to him. And he has done this amazing work in our lives, which can't be expressed properly and can only be received. And I, I hope that if you don't know Christ today as your Lord and Savior, you would say, what am I missing? What, what, what's this all about? I mean, I must be missing something. And I'm going to say, you are missing on what we have identified as the abundant life, uh, life everlasting, uh, uh, this guarantee of having heaven without any concerns or worries about that through our faith in Christ. Uh, he has already won the victory. We're following him. Whatever happens in this world is so meaningless compared to that. And I hope that that's true for you. Love Jesus Christ with all your heart. And follow him, track him, and he will start working in your life to show you what he's doing in your life. Some of you are still trying to figure out who you are. And I hope that we can help you just get on the right track to know that through Christ. God bless you. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, uh, have your word. It's sometimes uh, difficult to sometimes understand your word. This thing of your grace in our life is a, a mystery itself. And it's so difficult to properly understand the depth of it and the cost of it. And I pray that you'll help us to grab that today, just to review in our own minds what you've done to pay that price for us and your work in us still. And be rightly moved by that and to respond in a right way. Lord, would you work in our life today in a way to reveal to us what we're lacking in our life? Would you help believers today to, to see what you're doing in their life and just respond to it and give themselves to you and, and, and all that they are and allow you to work through them? Lord, may you uh, affirm and confirm to those who are serving you that, they're, uh, that you're pleased with what they are doing in their service. And would you encourage those, Lord, who today feel as though they don't know what they can do with you, especially with this COVID thing. And may you just help all of us to find uh, peace in our hearts with our relationship with you and be ever so thankful for the person who does not know you as Lord and Savior. Oh, Lord, may they, may they just have a hunger and a thirst to, to understand what you've done and what that means for them that you would love them so much that you would leave your glory and do what you've done just to save us from this curse. We commit ourselves now, ask your blessing on your word and uh, work in our life this week. Help us to, to just, uh, our love would be as, as deep and as broad and high as it can be. We commit ourselves to you and thank you for your goodness. Thank you, Lord, in Christ's name.